Well, good evening, everyone. I am joined today by Mr. Bruce Cartwright, and he's going to give an intro here in just a second. Uh, I want to start off the show by thanking the numerous uh, listeners and viewers that signed on as individual sponsors this week. I've been amazed at the number of such emails that have come in. Uh, if you are interested in becoming an individual sponsor of the show, you can, on the podcast feeds, there will be a, show, a link in the show notes. And I've included that last week in the YouTube notes, and I guess that's what led to the additional um, the additional sponsorships. I'm very, very humbled and very appreciative, and the audience is still still growing. Uh, last week's episode with John Hearn, we had to push it over the edge here over the weekend to get it over that uh, streak of 200 that we've had going, but uh, it, it, it got there. And uh, so today, we're here with Mr. Bruce Cartwright. Bruce, if you would tell everyone who you are and what you do. Hey, good evening, folks. Uh, Bruce Cartwright here. Um, uh, Lee, first off, thanks for hosting me. Uh, looking forward to doing this podcast. Um, the short answer is uh, currently live in western Montana. I'm a retired FBI special agent, served for 20 years. I uh, was formally educated as a trial attorney. Try not to hold that against me. Uh, most recently serving as an assistant district attorney in western Pennsylvania. Um, Retired out of the Bureau with a number of different collateral duties, including firearms training unit uh, and fire. Oh, we froze up there for a second. Uh, last thing I heard was uh, ADA in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, and again, picking up where we left off with that. Um, Retired out of the FBI in 2017 out of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I was primarily an East Coast agent um, and uh, had a number of different what we called collateral duties, uh, instructor, uh, SWAT medic, whatnot, um, and uh, currently run a company called SAC Tactical, again, based in Western Montana. And we're doing typical firearms and tactical training. Excellent. Excellent. Um, if you would tell the audience, what does um, typical training, what is typical training like in the firearms training unit with the FBI? Uh, so what typical training looked like at the FBI? Um, I was assigned there as a supervisor at the FBI Academy from 2005 to 2008 in something called the firearms training unit. And there's several different training programs, but for new agents, the folks that are going to become onboard in-service agents, uh, they go through, um, at the time, it was a five-month training. When I went through, it was four, uh, and it's typical or similar to basic uh, police academy, uh, and they get all of the typical classes, search and seizure, constitutional law and firearms, and we... Uh, when we did this at the academy, we assumed that the people that um, were coming in uh, knew nothing, and we started at ground zero. We started with, hey, this is a bullet. This is the end of the gun that it comes out of, and we do all the nomenclature lectures. And at the time, we were teaching uh, 40 caliber Glocks, the Glock 22, the full-size gun, uh, the Remington 870 shotgun, uh, and we transitioned from the MP5 10 millimeter to um, the M16 family of weapons. Uh, and I'm trying to think, I think it was somewhere in a neighborhood of 
120 hours uh, throughout that academy uh, that was devoted to firearms. It was the single largest block of training that a new agent would get. So, uh, and they've had some changes since then. I they understand the academy has shrunk back down or they've modified it. Um, and there's a different focus on different weapons. Uh, they still use a Glock, but it's a nine millimeter and they pretty much uh, just focus on the M16 family of weapons. Uh, it's my understanding that the shotgun has been discontinued in the FBI. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm not sure it's good. Um, <laughs> that makes my heart weak. Yeah, I was a big fan of the gauge and uh, used it operationally. Uh, the ones we had were fabulous guns, um, but they kicked. That's the bottom line. And for those that knew them and knew how to run them, they were a great tool. Um, and our training protocol with them when I was a new agent and then when I was teaching was uh, there were so many of them in service that an agent could acquire one relatively easily. And it was the primary long gun uh, when I went through new agents training back in the mid nineties. Um, but for example, like when we did car stops, when they talk about having somebody ride shotgun, that's what we were trained to do. Your right front passenger, in bureau vehicle be armed with a shotgun loaded with slugs and when you roll up to the car stop his job was to make sure that if they were engaged with gunfire that he would shoot back and the 14 inch 870 um, can be fired from inside most uh, sedans and uh, the rifle slug handily goes through uh, windshield glass so in that sense it was a great great system um, and and we didn't do any of the uh, ghost ring sites. We used typical Trigicon three-dot sites, and they look suspiciously like the three-dot sites on the SIG uh, uh, 228, 226 uh, pistols, and then later the Glock pistols. And they used it for commonality of training. All right. You mentioned SIG pistol. Was that what they were issuing when you went through? Yeah. Uh, yes. I was issued... My very first academy class was a SIG 228 in nine millimeter. My band instructor took one look at my hand, which is, I struggle to get into size double X gloves. And she said, hey, we're issuing you a 226. Um, and loved that gun. Shot very, very well. Um, fantastically accurate. And I, it never malfunctioned unless we set the malfunctions up. You know, you were doing disabled officer drills, one hand reloads, stuff like that. That gun was fabulous. So, and in retrospect, while I was a fan of the Glocks and I think my academy class was one of the last ones that still had the SIGs before we trans over, transitioned over to the Glocks. In retrospect, based on what we did in our mission, the SIG double action system made a lot of sense. All right. I guess while we're on the topic of, of pistols, uh, I've, I've seen numerous postings that you've made, like on historical firearms that the FBI used. Could you walk us through kind of the evolution of FBI handgun adoption, uh, what they started sure. with, what they've issued over the years? Um, sure. And it's sort of a Bill Vanderpool did a book on this. 
Uh, and I understand it's pretty well, uh, from what I've seen, uh, pretty well covers a lot of the details. Um, but essentially, we were we started out with um, Colt. Well, let me back up. The very earliest gunfighters that the bureau hired, the Walter Walshes, the Jelly Bryces, uh, pretty much carried what they wanted. Um, there's a website out there that talks about some of the early weapons, but they were typically uh, Colt or Smith and Wesson 38, 357 revolvers. Uh, I understand Colonel Walsh favored uh, the registered Magnums in 357, um, and Jelly Bryce, I believe, was also in the same boat uh, and favored uh, the the registered Magnums or the 357. Um, fast forward, there was a desire to um, standardize some of the uh, weapons. And so we went to either Colt Official Police or Smith & Wesson M&Ps. Um, and one of my compatriots in Western Montana went through the academy in 1967. Uh, and he and I have had a chat about that. And he was issued a Colt Official Police, was not a big fan of it because he thought the Smith & Wesson had a better action. And as a Smith guy, I tend to agree with that. And uh, he was able to somehow finagle himself an MNP, and that's what he carried for most of his time uh, until he got into SWAT. Uh, so Smith and Wesson, uh, basically a double action revolver, either Colt or Smith and Wesson, uh, and those were used for years. Um, and again, nothing fancy. Um, four inch skinny barrel, Model Ten, uh, square butt. Uh, almost all of them had or were fitted with a Packmeyer grip adapter, uh, typically uh, either carried in a Hank Sloan or a Burns Martin, correction, not a Burns Martin, a Buckheimer uh, thumb brake holster issued when the speed loaders came on uh, with Shafariland Comp 2, one single speed loader, uh, a three or a two by two pouch, and then uh, remaining rounds were carried in your trouser pocket on the right hand side. So after the revolvers continued, uh, the one that was the most famous is a Smith & Wesson Model 13. Um, and Smith was, or the Bureau asked Smith & Wesson to uh, produce a shorter barreled variant of the Model 10 in heavy barrel. And that came out as a Model 10-8 with a two and a half, not a three inch barrel. Um, and there are about, as I understand it, about 500 of those floating around the Bureau. I've handled a couple of them, and they're sweet guns. Uh, pinned in front sight, and about another 200 or so went to Michigan State Police. That led into the development of the Model 13 um, with a three-inch barrel. Um, and again, um, Packmeyer uh, grip adapter, uh, typical thumb brake holster, uh, single comp two speed loader, two by two patch. That remained the, the, the standard service weapon of the Bureau. And up until uh, there was the adoption of the Smith and Wesson 1076. <clears throat> and that was looked at basically after the 1986 shooting. Uh, down in Miami, uh, where we had a number of folks get injured and killed. Uh, and they wanted to have a more powerful weapon, something that was easier to reload. Uh, and there was two groups of folks in the Bureau. Some folks wanted 
high capacity nine millimeter. Some wanted 45 autos, uh, and this was viewed as an acceptable uh, uh, compromise. And I can tell you from the folks that carried them, and I had interactions with several agents that had them, that those that learned to use them absolutely loved them. And trying to, when we transitioned those folks away to the Glock, uh, it was like, you know, it was like you were taking away their firstborn kid. Uh, they did not want to give those guns up. There were about 2,400 of those issued, uh, and there were some mechanical issues with the gun uh, that caused it eventually to be withdrawn from service. Um, and concomitant at the time, um, we also, because there was an issue of wanting to have more long guns because of the, in the hands of the agents, that 10 millimeter was also supposed to be or formed the basis of the 10 millimeter MP5. And we can talk about that in a minute. Sure. Um, after the uh, 1076 was withdrawn from service, um, basically there was a, as I understand it, they needed to have an interim handgun uh, and they went with a SIG uh, 228 slash 226 system. Uh, and that was, again, fabulous system. I love mine. They worked really well. You could roll into um, other personally owned weapons, like my partner carried a SIG 220 for a number of years. Um, and so the SIGs were the issue handgun up through 97. And then uh, the selection process started. And the Glock in 40 was adopted um, in variations. And it would go back and forth. Sometimes they were issuing Glock 22s, sometimes Glock 23s were issued. And typically issued with 165 grain ammunition, doing about 950 feet a second. Um, and that remained the issue handgun up until about four or five years ago when there was another solicitation and the Glock 19M and 17M were selected as the follow-on uh, guns in nine millimeter. Um, and as I understand it, they are currently looking at an optics platform or optics ready uh, Glock, and uh, which surprised me that all of the 40 caliber guns are apparently being cycled out um, I carried a Glock 21 for a number of years. Uh, that's, those are no longer authorized and they're cycled out. Uh, and so I don't think it'll be too much longer before you start seeing uh, optics ready Glock 17s and 19s in the hands of uh, basic agents or, you know, everyday street agents. You mentioned and none of which covers SWAT, but we can touch that if you want to, too. Well, before we touch on SWAT, you mentioned personally owned weapons. What was the process for getting approved to carry a personally owned weapon? Um, so let me back up. There are three categories of firearms in a bureau. Uh, there's issue guns. There are uh, POWs, personally owned weapons, and then there are program guns. The SWAT guns are typically come under a program gun. Uh, the undercover stuff came under the program. For the personally owned weapons, what you had to do is you presented the gun that you wanted, assuming it was on the list. There was an approved list and it changed over time. Um, 
And one of the cool things at one point about being a firearms instructor was you could have whatever you wanted on your list and there was no limit. So that was one of the bennies. And that later later changed. But assuming your weapon was on the list, you took it to your principal firearms uh, instructor in your field office and you asked to submit that to Quantico for inspection. And then it was inspected for safety um, and uh, to make sure it functioned properly. It was added to your personal weapons card uh, at Quantico. Uh, and then once it was returned, you had to shoot a qualification with it. And you had to shoot a annual qualification um, to maintain that weapon. Um, and then you carried it. One of the and yet it, it depended on and how long it took. It depended on how long um, the backlog or how big the backlog was with the gun ball. Um, and, and a lot of folks, a lot of departments are able to do this a bit more quickly, but the Bureau has 13,000 at the time, 13,000 badging gun carriers. And so there's a lot of guns rotating into the gun ball. Um, but once it came back, you shot your qual and you bought your own holster for it and you drove on. And if you did stuff like you shot it a lot and you managed to break the left rear frame rail off of your Glock 21, like I did, they would send it out and Glock would issue a new uh, receiver. Or if you managed to shoot it so much that you uh, etched out the breech face, uh, they would issue you a new slide. And if the barrel became untenable because you shot it a lot, they would fix that. So um, there's a Franken Glock that I ended up with. But there's sort of a nice benefit. So, but that, that's how the POW program works. All right. Some of the agents in Miami were shooting Smith Wesson 915s, weren't they? 915s? I wouldn't, I don't doubt it. Or whatever the, the equivalent was back then. It may not have been a 915, it may have been a 59. The 459. Yeah. And those were SWAT guns like Jerry Dove and uh, Ben Grogan and the folks in the Miami shooting that were on Miami SWAT were using Smith & Wesson 459s. Okay. Um, and those were early SWAT guns. Um, and then they rotated away from those to the 1076s. And then it, and it depended on the office and the team and what they wanted. Uh, they ended up using a lot of the SIG 226s for a number of years. Uh, and then they started to make a push to standardize on the Springfield 1911. All right. If I'm getting my Smith & Wesson numbering right, 459 would have been a second generation Smith 9mm. The 915, I think, is a budget series third generation. So. 459 would be more period correct yeah i believe 459 yeah. that's that's what i remember seeing yeah. and handling jerry dove and ben grogan's guns uh they're still in the vault um and as, as i recall when i saw them that's what they were um yeah uh, and uh, at one point there were some smith and wesson third generation guns that were used as sort of a stopgap if I'm not mistaken, when the 1076s came out of service. And I, I've heard stories I was never able to verify, but basically they had been seized in conjunction with some case um, and some of those were used. Um, but I don't think that was very long lived. All right. so. now, the 1076 was a frame mounted decocker instead of a slide mounted decocker, correct? That is correct, yeah. So it functioned like it, it functioned exactly like a SIG 226 or a 228. 
can you tell us anything about the 10 millimeter adoption? Um, there are a bunch of different things out there. Um, it was uh, it was supposed to be um, the next great thing. Uh, the idea that they were really looking for, as I understand it, is that the Bureau wanted to have handguns and carbines that used the same round. And so the 1076 was supposed to be uh, the typical issued gun for agents, and it was for a number of people. Uh, and then the long gun would be the MP5. And I can tell you, um, in terms of effectiveness, we ran, and this is older technology, but 190 grain jacketed hollow point, typical cup and core bullet and made by federal. Um, and from all of the shootings I uh, was aware of, it worked pretty well. Um, in terms of adopting it, I think, and I can't confirm this, but I think this was a way to sort of uh, uh, placate those that wanted ultra high capacity guns and those that wanted 45s. Um, and it's, you know, it's a big bore gun, but there were more rounds in it. And there were, uh, I think there were typically nine round magazines in the 1076, but there were some 12 rounders floating around that I think Smith only made for the Bureau. Um, and uh, I've heard of them, I haven't seen them. Uh, and again, I, I, one of the friends of mine, agent I served with, uh, went through a Barnhart school, a Jerry Barnhart school with a 1076. And he said, you know, he's a gun guy, so he knew how to maintain it. And it just ran like a sewing machine. And again, guys that carried them, um, especially violent crime agents, understood that it was a heavier gun, but those that did really liked it. But I'm not sure that gets, I'm not sure that's what you're looking for, Lee. Uh, yeah. What was the carbine that the MP5 replaced? Um, the carbine that the MP5 replaced there were some Remington 7 to 60s in service in the Bureau at that point. Um, and as I understand it, um, there was sort of a hodgepodge. I mean, we had Colt monitors. There's still a couple of those in the, the vault at Quantico, which was the Browning automatic rifle in 30 6 And it's one of the regrets that I will have to my dying day that I was never able to sit down with a, a bunch of 30 6 ball and turn that into noise despite my best efforts um there were some i and there were other hodgepodge of different guns uh and obviously the the most famous though was the thompson submachine yeah. gun and that's we used those extensively um and so the, in terms of a sub gun the thompson would be the predecessor when did those come out of service I'm trying to think we stood up um, the hostage rescue team for the LA Olympics in the early eighties, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so it would have been around that time because um, the MP5 got uh, put into service in the nine millimeter at that point after 86, uh, the Bureau went to HK and asked for the 10 millimeter version. So I would say they pretty much came out of service in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and most guys, most folks. And when I talked to agents at that time, most folks, if they needed a long gun, they just relied on the 870. That's what everybody used. 
Um, and if you needed a, a rifle, uh, the other thing, uh, most rifle armed agents were SWAT agents at the time. And so they just had M16s of one variety or other. Uh, yeah. And most of the SWAT, SWAT guys had been former military, so it was a good fit. Yeah, about 82-ish, 83-ish, I was in seventh grade. I went on a tour of the FBI building in D.C., and they did a demonstration for us with a Thompson uh, submachine gun then. Did you get the target? No, I did not. Uh, bummer. I went on the same tour, and I don't. I, I won't say that that um, that didn't prohibit me from getting into the bureau. Let's just, you know, it's like, oh, okay, maybe I want to do this. Right. All right. Uh, you mentioned the the SWAT guns and their adoption. If you could talk on that for a minute. Sure. Um, the original SWAT guns um, in the field were well. Okay, let me go back. The very earliest SWAT guns were four-inch Smith & Wesson Model 19s with round butts uh, carried um, in a, uh, a Border Patrol thumb brake style holster with a tie-down um, and a triple speed loader pouch, and they were typically carried on a web belt. And those revolvers were, a lot of those came from, um, and there were some Model 66s, but a lot of those came from Naval Investigative Service, and they were absolutely uh, uh, very cool guns um, and really, really sort of the, the, the pinnacle of uh, a four-inch service revolver. Uh, once the revolver started being transitioned out, uh, there were mainly uh, Smith 459 autos, and then uh, the SIGs picked up because, the, as I understand it, there was some concern about the reliability or durability with the Smith 459s. Um, and the SIGs had a hard, a really good run and were well thought of. Um, shortly after that, then they rolled into the 1076s. And eventually, uh, because, and, and people need to understand, there's two elements of SWAT in a bureau. The hostage rescue team, which is essentially based at Quantico, and then SWAT, which comprises all of the field uh, SWAT teams at all the different field offices. And HRT started out with custom Browning high powers, uh, as I understand it, done by Wayne Novak. Um, and then they transitioned to the less bare swift response pistol, which was a, basically a less bare um, innovation using a para ordnance frame. Uh, so you'd have 14 rounds of 45. They had issues with those running and, and you know, love my para ordinances that I've shot, but the springs are always an issue, leaving those guns loaded. And that's what most guys do. They'd have training mags, they'd have duty mags. Those springs, for whatever reason, in the magazines um, were never considered really reliable. So they went to, uh, uh, they transitioned across the board to a um, Springfield uh, single stack, the professional model. And that's what they ran up until just recently. And I understand some of those guns are still in service or at least in inventory, uh, but most of the teams are now uh running Glock 17 M's. So, okay. and 
unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, the MP510s are pretty much all out of service. They're essentially in the same, they're looked at in the same way uh, as the Thompsons were. They, they're, they're maintained, a few of them are maintained in field offices for historical um, uh, demonstrations like the Thompsons are. And so most agents that you're going to see today are going to be running uh, uh, an M4 for a long gun and a, a Glock for a, a handgun. Yeah, I know that there's a program now that the agents can purchase a Colt 6920 that's you know set up to certain specifications. Uh, they can get as like a personally owned rifle to get if they're not issued one. Uh, I happen to have a contract overrun of one of those models. So that's the one I'm familiar with with it. Um, you're absolutely right. I think they now are just the, the POW rifles are there. They've gone to a similarly configured Geisley. Yeah. Um, but that was there for a while. Um, I had a POW Colt and it was an older one. I actually had two and I took one off my list. Um, and they were great guns there. You know, it's just your standard 16 inch flat top carbine, um, and neat guns. I will tell you the POW Colt carbines and now the Geisleys are probably uh, the best we ever fielded. So, but very, very cool guns. All right. Let, let's go back to the training aspect. Uh, you said that the, the agents going through the academy get roughly 120 hours of training. Is that what I understood? That's my understanding. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and roughly... 3,000 to 3,500 rounds of handgun at the time. Um, and I think somewhere in the neighborhood of, I'm not sure the exact round counts on the shotgun uh, and the MP5s, but I think it's roughly in the thousand round range for that. But the primary emphasis is on the handgun. Do they lose a lot of agents in training due to failure to qualify? Um, no. Uh, there was, um, there are people that struggle with some of that. Um, and I haven't talked to the, the, the gents in the FTU currently, not in the last year or so. Um, but there was a, a significant effort for a remedial program to get people where they needed to be. And we had uh, what used to be called fast track, which is a chance to that folks that struggle with that to get them where they needed to be. And by and large, it was pretty successful. I think, and this is just purely personal opinion, I think the removal of the shotgun, um, which caused a lot of issues in the past, uh, was probably beneficial. And, you know, you're trying to teach three weapon systems. Now they're teaching two. And it's easier to focus on that. So, you know, I can say from an instructor point of view that there's a lot of carryover between the pistol and the carbine as mm -hmm. far as, you know, they both load and unload in the same manner. You just substitute the bolt for the for the slide. And the only difference is the manual safety on, on the carbine. And then the shotgun is just a completely different animal. And right. I'm, a, I'm a shotgun lover and I, I like to focus on it. It's my favorite of the long guns. But from a teaching perspective, I understand the challenges that come with it. And running a big program, I understand the institutional inertia of wanting to go to just carbine and pistol. Well, and, and I agree with you on that. I, uh, there was a huge push 
when the war on terror got started up in you know 2001 2002 um, to start because a lot of our folks went overseas a lot of our folks were embedded with military units and there was no 870s there were never you couldn't you didn't find any of that um but m16s were everywhere and so there was a big push to um incorporate the m16 as essentially like a patrol rifle uh and i can tell you having been stationed in rural offices um as much as i love the 12 gauge uh whenever you have some situation where you might have a long shot the carbine is what gets drawn out of the rig if you're in a house that's a different story um i am a big fan of the 12 gauge um but it is different. But once yet, but I grew up shooting bird guns. I mean, I hunted as a kid and, you know, running a shotgun was everybody knew how to do that. And I think that went away when, you know, you started seeing fewer and fewer people that had significant firearms experience coming into law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is the ongoing training for agents like once they've graduated from the academy and they're out in the field? Uh, the ongoing training or the in-service training, assuming they're not in SWAT, every agent's required to or was required to qualify four times a year. Um, and so that meant you had four sessions, minimum, usually a minimum of 250 rounds a session in handgun. Um, and so usually you would see it was dependent on each field office and the principal firearms instructor in the field office to set it up, but you would see a mix of qualification shoots, you would see training, uh, you'd see combat courses that got run. Um, and so it was really up to, it, it incorporated whatever the PFI wanted to do, and it also looked at um, what was available locally. Um, you know, where I was in Northern Idaho, we had a fairly um, uh, robust program, uh, had a great a couple of PFIs. So we actually had turning targets. I know 10 or so years before I got to the uh, Coeur d'Alene, uh, Idaho resident agency, we didn't have the turning target system. So those were, they were doing qualifications, you know, at one point in a field until we got hooked in with the state police. Um, but it varies. There's supposed to be a component of um, uh, a legal component where they talk about deadly force all the time. And that is supposed to be done every year. Uh, at least uh, there was defensive tactics, uh, which mainly was non or was compliant handcuffing. Um, and then depending upon, again, what the principal firearms instructor wanted to do. You could have familiarization fire with long guns that weren't issued to you, or you would, uh, you could be required to qualify. So the demarcation was anytime you had an issued long gun, you had to shoot qualifications with it. If you, and there were agents that didn't have long guns. Um, and so as long as they qualified with a handgun, they were required to show familiarity with the long guns, typically the shotgun. Um, and that has since gone away, at least because the shotguns are pulled out of service. In there's an example in the RA that I worked in, uh, we had all sorts of guns, MP5, shotguns, M4s, you name it. And what I wanted to do, and I had a great supervisor at the time, he's like, 
run the program as you see fit. So I focused our training on uh, the 40 caliber handguns and got everybody issued M4s. Then we got them upgraded with the better optical sights and lights and all of that sort of, uh, sort of thing. And while we still trained with the shotguns and the MP5s, the focus was on the M4s because we're in a rural part of Idaho. And as much as I like the gauge, the reality is very few people used them and very few people deployed them. Uh, and the, the guys that did had had significant violent crime experience and liked them. So, yeah, I'm running shotgun classes two days next week, and I have a total of two deputies signed up for it. So I feel your yeah. pain. Feel your pain. Yeah, and you know what, Lee? I think that's a good thing to do, though, because a lot of this stuff is going away. Um, and I uh, look at guys like um, Ken Hackathorn that does the gun guys videos with Bill Wilson. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to see that stuff's being done because a lot of this is going away. Um, and there's going to come a time when this comes full circle. At some point, somebody's going to say, hey, we need to use shotguns again. And people are going to look left and right and say, who knows how to use this thing? And they're going to look at some crusty old reprobate like you or me and say, uh, hey, Lee or Carter, you guys know how? Yeah, we know how to use that stuff. Um, and, and there's a place for it. Um, it's just not as sexy as an M4. So, yeah, well. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still a gauge guy at heart, but uh, I understand where the world is. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I'm a big fan of them. How much is dictated out of DC in the in the firearms training unit out to the PFIs? At the time, the the PFIs had significant autonomy. Um, FTU would set certain uh, standards, like for example, the qualification course was set by FTU and everybody had to run. The fact that you had to shoot quals every year, that's all set by DC uh, or Quantico. Um, the type of ammunition that's used, that all came out of ballistic research facility. So at the very highest levels, you had to you know, you had to follow what Quantico was saying. But once the program got down to how does a PFI run the program in his field division, that was pretty much left up to the PFI. And the purchasing um, decisions were made at the time, I think that's changing, uh, by the PFI. And so most PFIs that were pretty squared away to get around or be aware, or be able to deal with the, the fluctuations in availability ammunition would basically start trying to get a stockpile put back so they'd have at least a year uh, of um, ammo that they could use to train. Um, but how much, for example, how much DT defensive tactics stuff they did up to the, the PFI? How much, you know, was there some offices that wanted that went real hard on more in-car training, yeah, absolutely. And it was up to what the PFI thought uh, the office needed. And that that worked pretty well because what works in, you know, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, may not work in, you know, Savannah, Georgia type thing. Two completely different environments. Exactly. I've exactly. Been, to, been to both places, two completely different environments. Um, one of the things we mentioned in several previous episodes 
were that, you know, one of the FBI's core missions for years was training state and local officers. And that seems to have gone away. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it has. Uh, I was upset about that to see that happen. Um, I can tell you uh, that was something that I pursued vigorously. Um, whenever, whatever office I was in, I did that um, and did significant uh, training of agencies. And, you know, it, it, it's a huge benefit to the bureau and the way I explained it. And when I had good bosses, they were all over because, you know, if we needed something in X town with XPD department, if I had done schools there, oh, I knew who to call. I'd okay. pick up the call and I, I, and I've got friends from those schools that I taught that I still stay in touch with today. Uh, there is a deputy in northern Idaho that is trying to teach me how to powder coat cast bullets. Uh, and God bless him. Um, but you always did that. I think it's important to do that. Um, because the other thing is, when you see shrinking firearms training budgets in all these departments, I mean, nobody I've ever talked to said, hey, my chief just gave me a pile of money, go out and do what I want. They always like, hey, here, do more with less or do more with nothing. And that's typically what you see in smaller departments. That's where the Bureau was to come in and we would train and you get folks, you get instructors, you make sure they're up to speed. And it, we would do regional um, instructor courses and put law enforcement officers through those courses. Uh, so they became, or at least exposed to instructor methodology. Uh, you know, I ran a lot of carbine courses because that's what everybody was looking for. Um, had great success with it, but I think that's something that needs to be done. Uh, and I'm not quite sure, I have my suspicions, but I'm not quite sure why that has gone away. Um, but, you know, I think it's a huge benefit to the Bureau. Um, and again, to be able to go into a department and do it, and, and I remember setting up one school one time and the chief's talking to me. He's like, how much is this going to cost me? And I'm like, nothing, sir. What do you mean, nothing? I said, the FBI can't, we're not allowed to charge for any of this. And, you know, there were times we found ways to help alleviate some of the ammunition concerns. Let's just leave it at that. Stuff falls off trucks occasionally. Yeah, stuff falls off the truck all the time. Um, and those are great schools. And the other thing is, I learned a pile from all of those guys. I mean, and if you had the right attitude, like part of it, sometimes the Bureau has a bad reputation. Oh, you know, it's my way or the highway. And it's like, you always walk in and you, when you run those schools, it's like, listen, fellas, this is a way, it's not the way. Um, here's a box, operate within it. We'll show you how we do it. Uh, and if this works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's great too. But at least you're able to take this back to the troops and you try to spread the sunshine that way. So, um, yeah, big fan of doing schools like that. Yeah, I was fortunate to be able to attend three FBI instructor schools before that kind of faded away in, in our area. And I had to go to Alabama to take them. 
And okay. I, had a, I had a conversation a couple of years ago with a pretty high ranking FBI guy. And he was like, how can we reestablish our relationship with local agencies? I'm like, well, Crane, you wow. used to do this. Let's, why don't we get back to doing that? And, you know, unfortunately, inertia is a hard thing to overcome. But I think the biggest benefit would be, as you just said, is the relationships that it forges. You know, you're, you're nothing as a cop without contacts. It's who can you call? You know, if I needed a, needed help in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, yeah, call you. <laughs> you know, or if you needed help in Northeast Georgia, you'd call me, and we know each other because of training. You exactly. Know, that that's the way this stuff gets done in this work. Exactly, and it, it's that model exists in the bureau. You know, while we have the ability to cut leads for investigations. If I need to cut a lead to somebody in Pittsburgh, I know who I'm calling. I'm going to grease the skids ahead of time and call certain people there. Hey, I need this or I need. And, and, and that's how things worked. And it's a huge benefit because of the relationships. And you can cut through a lot of mindless bureaucracy and make things happen, um, which is the way things are supposed to work. Um, and yeah, and, and the relationships I built doing that, uh, I still number most of, the, of those folks among my friends. They were, it was a great part of my experience. Um, I will say after the war on terror started, there was a, 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 a drive away from that. And uh, with all due respect to the Bureau, I think that was a mistake. I think, you know, I got phone calls and tips from serving police officers that I had in schools or that knew me and, you know, Hey, who's the FBI guy here? Well, call Bruce. Well, how do you know him? Well, he taught a school for us. Okay. And that's how that worked. So um, now, I would I hope they would start doing it again. Yeah. Well, let's hope maybe, maybe this, this episode will get into the right ears and uh, it'll inspire that. Um, I know that there's been several, you know, key influential people over the years that have come through the FBI firearms training, such as one Delph A. Jelly Bryce. Um, I would like if you could kind of elaborate on some of those historical figures uh, for us for a second. Sure. Um, when Mr. Hoover, Director Hoover, uh, was involved in the early days of the Bureau, uh, the old adage about hiring attorneys and accountants was pretty much true. Uh, and quite frankly, they were looking for gunfighters and guys like Walter Walsh and uh, Delph Bryce were some of the folks that got hired to do that sort of thing. Um, and that continued and in many ways probably formed the, uh, the, the nucleus of the SWAT program that happened much later because um, these were the gun guys. Um, there were significant um, folks along the way, um, uh, and, and they were more regionally located, like Wayne Dobbs. I listened to one of the podcasts that Wayne did with you and Daryl Bolke, and he talked about, um, I think the gentleman's name was Parker, who was a bureau guy down in, in the, the Dallas area. Um, and you saw that around the country. Um, later on, you ended up with uh, John Hall, who was the unit chief at the firearms training unit. And John oversaw the transition uh, from the revolvers into the semi-automatics after the 1986 shooting. And John was 
and is a brilliant individual. He went on to go, he left that unit and eventually became the unit chief in the legal instruction unit, which is sort of, you know, hard to do leaving the, the range and then going into the office of general counsel. And he has written at least one book on the use of deadly force that's considered a fairly scholarly tome about that stuff. Um, and there were a number of folks that got assigned to the hostage rescue team in the early days uh, that went out, did training with other areas. Uh, the principal firearms instructor um, uh, at HRT that I knew best was a fellow by the name of Scott Warren. Scott brought in a lot of folks uh, like Ken Hackathorn for the MP5. Um, and uh, um, he brought in uh, Rob Hot, who was a shotgun guy, uh, who was the chief, uh, I think, up in Sistersville, Ohio, or uh, West okay. Virginia. And Rob's just a wizard. And I understand his son's teaching it now, too. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of those guys, that, that's sort of the, the, the nutshell, the, the 20,000 foot view of that. And it, it, it you know, comes and goes. Yeah. Are you familiar with? Are you familiar with Bob Talbert? Yes. Yes. And I met Bob. He was part of, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because um, there are a lot of folks, I, I, the guys that in many ways were influential, never sought any real public acclaim. I mean, there was sort of an undercurrent in the Bureau, um, you know, be out of sight, out of mind, do your job, be the quiet professional. Um, and a lot of the guys that I knew in that world just sort of, yeah, I'm just, I'm just another brick agent doing my job. Bob had significant influence with some of the uh, weapon selection and he was around for some of the involvement in um, the early part of the ballistic research facility where they were setting up the, 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 you know, the ammunition testing and whatnot. Yeah. I understand that uh, ballistics and everything is going to be moving to the Huntsville, Alabama area. Say that again, my friend. I understand that all the ballistics testing is moving to the Huntsville, Alabama area. That's correct. That's my understanding. Um, and the BRF, Ballistic Research Facility, they uh, were able to, um, there, there was a move afoot to move a big chunk of our footprint at the academy down to Huntsville. Um, and I've not seen it, but I understand the facility's fabulous. Like they've got a thousand yard range and they've got, you know, secure underground tunnels and, you know, to, to underground ranges or covered ranges. Um, and those guys really, a number of those folks are friends of mine and they really are number one, incredibly humble and incredible subject matter experts. I mean, they're like a couple in particular, literally walking ballistic encyclopedias. So, um, I guess one other thing that has popped in my mind while we're talking, suppose an FBI agent gets into a shooting in the field. Who comes and investigates that? And what's that process like? Uh, it's a two, actually a threefold investigation. Number one, if an agent's involved in a shooting, and we were typically with 13,000 agents, we typically had roughly 20 shootings a year, um, which you know, is a fairly small number um, when you start looking at other departments that size. I mean, we're, I think, last count, bigger than Los Angeles PD, smaller than NYPD, 
Um, a Department of Homeland Security has dwarfs everybody. Um, but what would happen is after the scene secured, local law enforcement is going to show up and interact because it is still a shooting in some state or local jurisdiction. They're going to be involved. The Bureau is going to in investigate it from a point of view of um, federal criminal law. And then there's an internal investigation that sort of runs concurrently with that. Um, it, it, it's sort of amorphous, but, but what happens is the, the, the Bureau comes in through the shooting incident review team, and they take a look at all of this to see if the agent was within uh, the scope of his employment and if he complied with the, 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 the training and the guidelines that, they have to that we had to comply with. Um, so there was some interaction there. Um, I know at one point I taught post-shooting tactics to onboard personnel. And one of the things that we stressed was, um, especially in the Washington, D.C. area, everybody and his brother's got a badge. And you make a convincing imitation of somebody with a gun doing something stupid. So you want to be get yourself identified as quickly as possible and realize that you know, the first guy that shows up to respond to your scene may be in plain clothes. Um, and we taught folks how to interact with those folks. And um, it's always, you know, having been through off-duty arrests, um, that's always a, a fraught, a dangerous time. But that's how that goes. And usually it depends on a number of different factors. Um, but usually it takes about a year for an agent to get clear uh, to, you know, um, and I usually, and from what I've seen, yeah, most of the time, most of the state charges or state investigations get resolved and are cleared before the Bureau uh, does. All right. So they're getting investigated at the state level as well as the federal level. Then. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um and it'd be, you know, so you get investigated by the Department of Justice and by whatever state entity or has jurisdiction. So you're in Georgia. Uh, I don't know if, uh, the, I, if Georgia Highway Patrol has the in primary criminal investigative jurisdiction Georgia. or if it's a sheriff. I would be the sheriff and then the GBI would be the state uh, okay. equivalent to that. Then, then the sheriff would most likely conduct an investigation if there was, say, a shooting in the Atlanta area, um, and then the bureau would come in and investigate it. Um, so, yeah. All right. Uh, before we we talk about your company, is there anything else that you would like to discuss with the uh, FBR? Excuse me, FBI firearms training, weapons selection, or history before we move on that I didn't ask um, you about. Yeah, a, a couple of things, just a couple of quick shots. Um, and, and folks sometimes don't understand the scope of the selection process. Um, you know, and, and I considered myself a reasonably adept uh, and interested gun guy. I didn't understand what it was like to buy hearing protection by the pallet <laughs> when you went to, until you went to the academy. Oh, you need holsters? Well, there's a pallet of them because we've got, you know, 50 people in a new agent class and you're running, you know, 10, 11, 12 classes a year. 
Um, yeah, now you're buying it. And it's the same thing with ammunition. At peak training cycles at the time, we were going through 1.1 million rounds a month at the academy. Um, and some folks say, you know, and I've heard it said uh, that we're fairly conservative in some of the weapon selection. And one of the things you touched on, Lee, is absolutely correct. Um, guns got to work in Miami, Florida, and it's got to work in Fairbanks, Alaska. It's got to work in Los Angeles, and it's got to work in Kabul, Afghanistan, or wherever we may be. And so that sort of, you know, those extremes have to be tested for. And so again, I can't say enough good about the ballistic research guys. They do a really, really fabulous job at testing that. Um, and they've been a big help to a lot of local agencies. So, um, and that, and then the last point I'll make is when we taught new agents, one of the things we were looking for was to teach a unified system. In other words, the way we teach a trigger press, it works whether you're shooting a double action revolver, a SIG 228, an 870, an MP5, a sniper rifle, or a 1911. It has to work with all of that. And so it was a different perspective. It was sort of neat to see that and uh, do a pretty good job getting folks where they need to be. So at any rate, that's uh, out there. Well, now I got to ask about trigger presses. All right. So we teach a cycle uh, system. Um, so let's just use everybody's favorite Glock pistol. Um when you take the initial slack out of the trigger um, and you come to that initial wall, that would be considered the initiation of the trigger press. You press straight back to the rear as the gun's cycling. You want to reset the trigger as the gun's in recoil. Your finger never leaves the trigger, but the trigger pushes your finger straight out as far forward as it goes and then you come right back to that initial point of, res of, of, of uh, resistance. That's considered one trigger press. The idea is you want to instill um, the fact that, because handguns typically, there's no way to say this, politely, but they suck at stopping people. Um, and you may need to shoot some, they may not be impressed shooting them once. And so we want our folks to be able to understand that they need to, um, be able to deliver multiple shots, but they also need to be able to explain why they fired each and every round. And so that trigger press is looked at as a cycle. Um, we put people on trigger graph machines. We had all sorts of high-speed photography, and then we found ways to duplicate that in the field because um, one of the biggest problems we saw with people, would, especially when they were trained in other areas, is they would pin the trigger to the rear, wait for the gun to reset during rec or recoil, and then they would slowly let the trigger out. And I'm, it, it drove us insane trying to break people of that. And I don't know whether that came out of the, the some of the competition stuff. Um, and people, you know, they, they talk about wanting to hear an audible reset. You're in a gunfight, for goodness sakes. You can't hear anything anyway after the first round goes off or you have issues. I, and we wanted to teach a singular system that would, you can use that on an 870, you can use that on a 1911, on a revolver, et cetera. So that's why we taught it. And that's how we taught it. But. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, one of the old training manuals 
when they were teaching, excuse me, let me back up, for the transition from revolvers to semi-autos, you know, you had those first double single guns. One of the old training manuals taught the pin to the rear during recoil and then reset as an intermediary step for learning the two trigger systems. And that was supposed to go away to where you started resetting under recoil. And somehow something got lost in translation. And that this is just to teach the two different trigger presses that are on the same gun. And it stuck around and it, for some reason, continues to be an issue today. Um, I've heard about some of that, and it's amazing how things get sort of stuck in the psyche of an agency and they just keep going on and on and on. I mean, one of the dumb things, and I asked at one point, we were always told when I went through the academy, take a box of ammunition, dump it in your right front pants pocket, you'll fill your magazines on the line to, to speed up continuity of training. And I asked, again, this gentleman that I worked with, uh, did some volunteer with where that came from. He says, oh, dude, we were doing that back in the 60s at the academy because you only got six out of your, well, he didn't have speed loaders, just six out of your loops. And then you loaded from a pocket, you know, and he said all these newfangled speed loaders and stuff didn't come till way later. Um, and so I'm like, some things never went away. And that I've heard that before. And I, I think some of the idea of that circular or that 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 process driven trigger press was designed to get away from it um and in retrospect while you have to learn two different quote trigger presses for the sigs they are not in my mind they're not in any way a handicap and i tend to be a fan of those guns so the only issue that i see in the modern era with the with the traditional double action pistols is that you have people that resist the decocking anytime they come off of a target and they don't just habituate the decock. And I see people wanting to holster pistols that are still caught to single action mode. Um, I got some bad news for you. We saw people holstering, trying to holster guns yeah. that weren't decocked uh, 15 years ago with yeah. those. Um, and you still see that. I have a friend who was a... Um, uh, retired Pennsylvania state trooper. And they just a couple of years ago transitioned from the Glocks to of all things, a SIG P227. And they, I asked him about it. I said, cause that's sort of unusual. You just, you hadn't seen much of that. And he said, the shooting scores went up, guys did well, but they were always reminding the troops, make sure you decock. Yeah. And I I think some folks get wrapped around the axle about um, that long double action first trigger press. I grew up shooting revolvers. So I'm like, oh, that's just one. And then I got another 15, 16 rounds. That's like shooting a 1911 trigger. Woohoo, this is easy. And my son just started playing with a P228 and shooting it hard. He'd been a 1911 guy. And it's like, he's like, dad, this isn't hard. If you can shoot a revolver, this is easy. Yeah. So it gets back to training. Yeah. I went to the academy carrying a Smith 4006 and carried that for okay. the first seven years. And then we transitioned to Glocks. And, you know, back when I worked with the agency that was shooting the 4006 all the time, we were just adamant on when you came down off the target, you decocked. Yep. And we didn't typically see the failure to decock that I see 
now when I see people who adopt the TDA because they've read on the internet it's safer for appendix carry. Well, it is probably for the reholster if you decock. And, and if you fail to, now you're pointing a gun at your genitalia with a very light, crisp, you know, four pound trigger. Um, and, and that's what we always did. And, and that was the, the protocol I used. You never took more than a, if you had to take more than a step, decock, and, you know, when it comes off the target. Um, and I never found any heartache with it. In fact, John Hall, the unit chief from FTU, is credited with uh, pushing that decocking um, double action, single action system. And as I understand it, I think he talked to Masada Yuba about it at one point. Uh, but basically, his theory was, you know, a lot of agents are investigators. So they're not, unlike police officers, they're not typically having contact with violent individuals or potentially violent individuals every day. They're like your detectives that may work several months on a case and are not, you know, they're not rolling in a squad every day answering, you know, hey, you see the man with the, at the corner of with a disturbance call. Um, and so what John wanted to do was have a gun that had, that, that, that required the agent to have a deliberate long trigger press uh, for the first shot. And that tended to help ameliorate or deal with some of the concerns about any potential negligent discharges. And then John's thinking was after the, um, after the first shot went off, sorry about that, that you were in a gunfight. And if you're in a gunfight, then you want to trigger it's as close to a 1911 as you can get. And that the, the, the traditional double action, single action SIG system, uh, um, really shined in that area so all right if you would tell our audience about your training business there in montana um so after i retired i started doing some training with another retired agent uh i like to teach uh and i the the agent and i he moved to a different part of idaho so i formed a company called sac tactical um we're up on the web https colon slash slash S-A-C-O-N-S-C-O.com. It stands for SAConsultingCompany.com. Um, we, or I teach a significant number of um, uh, firearms-related classes, um, all sorts of things, uh, handgun, shotgun, carbine. Um, we had sort of taken it slowed down a little bit this year because of the ammunition issues and because of the concerns with COVID. Uh, I am really looking forward to getting back up and running on that. Uh, in fact, I may end up going down to gun site uh, to torment uh, Wayne and Daryl here uh, in November if that all, if all the stars line up. But looking to do more training along those lines. Uh, if people are interested in this part of the country, have them, you know, my name, uh, email contact, phone numbers all on there. The one thing that I'm looking to do, or two things that I'm sort of excited about and I'm looking to do is I've incorporated and I just finished developing the syllabi for uh, force on force classes, uh, two one day modules. One will be um, basically street encounters. The other will be something that can be done where you're doing threshold assessments of buildings where you may need to, to actually enter a building. I'm not teaching typical room combat or things like that. I, you know, we, I've never had any students that really were into that. Um, 
but there's a, a time and a place for knowing how to, you know, the front door of your house is open, your wife's screaming, the sheriff's office has got a five minute response time, you're not waiting. How do you do that smart? Um, and we're doing it with something called training for engagement guns, uh, which are firing uh, a 43 caliber paint pellet. So I'm going to beta test that this winter. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to that. So again, teach handgun, revolver, uh, shotgun, carbine. Um, and if you have a, a, a desire uh, to teach or learn the MP5, I've done that too. So you can find me on the web there. All right. We'll have a link to your business in the show notes uh, for this so that our audience can find you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I've been watching your schedule, hoping that uh, a class would come up when I can get out there during the summertime, Uh, just because any excuse to get out to Montana is a good reason to go to Montana. Well, Montana is supposed to be, and I agree, it is the last best place. Um, and because you hang out with Dobbs and Bulky, uh, you would be more than happy to let you come visit the state. Um, just kidding. Uh, it is gorgeous. Uh, I've been teaching <laughs> Most up. of the time I get told I can't come because I hang out with Dobbs and Bulky. Well, uh, Dobbs and Bulky, <laughs> we all sort of got introduced to each other by you know, uh, Pat Rogers. So uh, um, you're in good company there. Uh, but it's gorgeous country. Um you just have to understand that you're no longer top of the food chain, the Grizzlies rule. Um, and if you're out here in June, don't be surprised if you see snowflakes, uh, it happens. Yeah. I, so. I tell people that are traveling out West to not drive past bathrooms or gas stations. Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, I love living out here. I grew up on the East coast. Uh, and it's just a different world. I mean, it's much drier. I like the lower humidity, um, but it's nothing in parts of Montana where I live. You can be on a back road and drive for an hour and not see another vehicle. Yeah. I mean, at all. And so that's that's where it's at worth living. So, And there will be a bunch of stuff coming up on uh, the website. So um, keep your eyes open and uh, would love to have you jump in when you get out this way. I will certainly be watching the schedule and be hoping for a trip this coming summer. And I, good to have you. Any closing thoughts you would like to make? Uh, yeah, I don't mean to be too maudlin about it, but I say this to my classes. Um, evil walks the face of the earth. Um, you know, you don't want to live in fear, but bad things happen to good people. Uh, keep your head on a swivel. Be looking around. Um, and as my Aikido senseis have all told me, uh, the best fight's the one you avoid uh and so see what needs to be seen avoid those fights if you can um and then drive on uh, but be careful so and i would one other thing take this stuff seriously you know somebody once told me when i first got into teaching firearms you know if you screw up uh, uh arrest procedures or you screw up report writing okay case may get tossed if you mess up uh firearms somebody's probably going to get hurt and take it seriously go find a training that you need to find um and it's probably something we'll hopefully talk about again but we need to find a better way in the firearms industry uh for folks to get 
sustainment training. Yeah. So absolutely. At any rate, thank you. Absolutely. Um, for our audience, if you're enjoying the show, we ask that you share the links with all of your intelligent friends. Don't bother sharing it with the dumb ones. Uh, we, we, we don't need, need that around here. We want good, positive, intelligent people to join in our conversations. Um, Bruce mentioned the three-inch Model 13, which is one of my favorite uh, firearms at all time. And uh, Special Agent Dick Berry used to always talk me out of my three-inch Model 13. Every time he saw me, he would ask you to get that gun from me. And I never would let him have it. But uh, as this is an FBI episode, we're going to dedicate this to the memory of Special Agent Dick Berry, who was also a major uh, in the Marine Corps during the Korean War, and who was my sheriff's father and was just an all-around uh, great guy. And so thank you to Dick Berry and to all the other good G-men who uh, have done good work for this country. Uh, I know these last few years have been hard on you with a lot of the stuff that's been in the news, but I can tell you there are still outstanding FBI agents out there doing good work. A lot of good guys that are still out there doing good work. And, um, you know, we all want to be judged for ourselves as individuals. So let's judge them as themselves for individuals. And uh, everyone, we appreciate you tuning in and joining us for this episode. And thank you for your time.